Amen. I was visiting with someone in class uh, yesterday, and they mentioned to me, I need to meet Dr. Bob. You know, he's one of your closest friends. You talk about him all the time. I need to put a face with the name. And I don't have a camp. Dr. Bob, when I told him this, said, what, you didn't have a picture of me? And he was hurt. But fortunately, his mom is still in town, and she did. <laughs> this is when Dr. Bob was suffering his Jesus complex. Um, if you want to see Dr. Bob now, he's the shiny head with the short gray hair right down here. But uh, thank you, Mrs. Leone, for uh, the opportunity to see him. Second business matter. I don't know how many of you watch TV. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not a big TV watcher typically. Okay, Philip, we've got like a panic up here. This is not working. Yeah, this is this is a code code black actually. <laughs> um, while while you work on that, I'll right. tell them about TV. Oh, if you need a lesson, this is the time we hand out lessons. They're out back there. They'll walk down the aisles. Carol and Mark have lessons. Just raise your hand. I, okay, we've got some down here. Tim, Phil, the the Butler brothers. Um, I'm not a big TV watcher, and people at work tend to make fun of the fact sometimes I'm a little bit behind the curve because there are shows out there that I just discovered that evidently people have discovered some time ago. Recently, um, um, I just got turned on to this show, 24. Have you all seen that show? Okay, I'm, I'm a compulsive type person. So these are not good things for me to get turned on to, shows like that. It's this show that takes place in 24 hours, and it's in real time. Evidently, it's over 24 episodes, but it's 24 hours. And, you know, all of the watches and clocks in the show are set for the right time. And, like, week one of season two starts at 8 a.m. and goes to 9 a.m. And all the and sometimes they've got four screens going at once with, you know, the, the things just happening in real time. And when on TV, they say... Well, I'll be there in 10 minutes. You can set your watch by it. It happens in 10 minutes. It's a really cool show. The problem is it, it's, it's this big national crisis that, you know, <clears throat> there was a nuclear bomb that was set to go off in L.A., and they had to deal with it, and then there was like this usurping of the presidency. Long story short, I started watching that, which was a huge mistake, and I finished it at 4 this morning because I... <laughs> I just had to know how it turned out. And you've got to watch 24 hours. So I've watched 24 hours of TV in the last two days or so. and I'm absolutely wired, okay? Last point. Um, we are out of Bibles again. It's been brought to my attention. Sorry, but uh, we will have more here next week. We use an NIV study Bible in this class by and large. And uh, it, it is our strong desire, because the purpose of this class is biblical literacy. That starts with having a Bible. It starts with having a Bible you write in. Something you can put your name in, something you can keep up with, make your notes in. If you don't have a Bible like that, we are glad to furnish you with one. Uh, 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 and we will have more of those next week. So don't hesitate to come and to get one. Today we're still in the book of Matthew. We're looking at the parables in Matthew. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them with me. Matthew chapter 13 will be the first parable. But in the process of that, we'll start out asking a question. What is a parable? And it's not two bulls. A parable... 
I'm telling you, I've watched TV. I had toothpicks holding open my eyes because I had to finish it. What is a parable? Parable is uh, to take something that is ordinary, something that you're familiar with, a familiar story, a familiar fact, a familiar um, animal, something like that, and to use something that people are familiar with to teach people something you want them to learn. In its essence, that's what a parable is. To take something that people are familiar with and use it as a teaching tool on another subject. Um, <clears throat> parable comes from the Greek word parabole. You can see how we got parable from it. It's pretty easy, huh? Um, that the, the Greek word, which is a compound Greek word, means to set something beside something else. Um, it also means to compare. So in, in, Greeks, in Greece, b before the New Testament time, our New Testament's written in what they call Koine Greek. Koine just means everyday Greek. It's not artistic, archaic, classical Greek like Homer uh, would write or, or some of the, the classic writers, uh, Xenophon and, and others of, of Greece. Um, it's very much just everyday newspaper Greek. If you read the newspaper, the newspaper is written for someone on about an eighth grade level generally. Um, so I've been told. I don't really have a clue if that's true or not, but I've heard it a bunch. Um, but, you, you know, you try, I know when we try cases, we try very hard to, to communicate our ideas and facts on something around a high school level. Uh, um, figuring if we're communicating on that level, then everyone should be able to follow what we're saying. Uh, Koine Greek is very much an everyday Greek that the New Testament was written in. It's one of the biggest reasons that the idea of using, for example, the old King James Version that has all of the uh, thou hast, seeneth, you know, doth thou noteth, understandeth, and all of this kind of stuff, really isn't that biblical for us today because we don't talk that way. And the New Testament's written in an everyday English speak. That's one reason Demon enjoys using the message so much when he's preaching. And uh, it, it's, it's an ability to, to speak in everyday language that the original Greek's actually written in. So uh, if you go back, though, in Greek history and you read, there were Greek people who had jobs of rhetoric, which these are guys who talked for a living. Um, they could be lawyers. They could be politicians. They could be teachers. But they were people who made their living out of talking. And these people spoke in parables often for a teaching tool. And that's where the Greek word comes from. So a parable would be something as easily as a simile or a metaphor like uh, 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 bar horse uh, 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 used doctor's skill like uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like um, <clears throat> the precision. Yeah, Dr. Bob gave me an example with the precision of a surgeon. Okay, that's a we just lost bar horse, but <laughs> that's a good one. See, honestly, one of Dr. Bob's jobs for me is to help me with parables, and and I'll explain that to you in a minute. Um, Greek rhetoric would compare one thing to another to try and make a point. Same thing. Now, why did Jesus use parables? Number one, people relate 
to stories. People understand stories. Stories have a way of climbing inside your brain and working. Bob says, Dr. Bob says that psychology teaches that, that stories bypass defense mechanisms. You know, normally we have our defenses built up and if you want to come try and persuade someone of something that they already have made up their mind about, their defenses go up and you have a tough time doing it. And this is where Bob helps me as a lawyer. So we come up with stories or analogies or illustrations to try and help people relate to something outside of the, you know, then you kind of sneak in the back door and you make sense to them before they realize that you did it. Okay? That's what Nathan the prophet did with King David after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. See, David's there and Nathan the prophet didn't come into David and say, well, let's see, you've really ripped up the Ten Commandments this week. In addition to coveting your neighbor's wife, you killed your neighbor, uh, the husband had him killed, and you've lied about it and borne false witness. So, you know, he didn't just go in there and do that. Okay. Instead, Nathan goes in and says to David, David, I need to tell you a story. There's this real rich fella who has just thousands of sheep. And someone was coming to town and the rich fellow who had thousands of sheep decided not to kill one of his own sheep to feed the visitor. Instead, the rich fellow went over to this poor guy who only had one sheep to his whole name. That's everything he had. And the rich guy took his sheep, killed it, and fed the visitor. And David hears that and says, well, I need to know who this rich man is. He needs to pay. That's wrong. That's very wrong. And he needs to be killed for it. And Nathan says, well, actually it's you. <laughs> See, that's what you did when you took Bathsheba from Uriah and then killed Uriah. See, you bypass the defense mechanisms. So one reason Jesus uses parables, I'm convinced, is because people relate to stories. They understand stories. We like stories. Uh, you want to know the, what's the most popular movie of all time? Titanic. Okay. What's one of the worst PBS shows there's ever been? So bad they put it on PBS because no one would buy commercials for it. And none of you watched it because you don't know what it is. It's the Titanic. It was the same ship, the same iceberg, the same captain. One of them becomes the best all-time grossing movie. The other one, no one will watch. You know the difference? The PBS one was a bunch of dry facts. On 19-something-whatever, the Titanic took off from England and the winds were blowing. And the, and the other one told a story. And people like stories. We tune into them. We ignore the factual dissertation on PBS. Second reason. There's an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would speak in parables. Uh, uh, in Psalm 78.2, it's prophesied, I will open my mouth in parables. Now, the Hebrew word for parable that, that, that is used here is not the same as the Greek word because it's a different language. Okay? But when the, the Hebrew writers were translating the Old Testament into Greek, they used the word parable. The Hebrew word here is story. would most likely be translated story. Um, now, there's a third reason Jesus used parables. Aside from the fact that it was a good way to communicate, and aside from the fact that it was prophesied that he would do so, 
Um, the apostles asked Jesus in Matthew 13, why do we speak in parables? And Matthew quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And it's a very difficult answer and a very difficult passage for us to understand. Uh, it's long and it's bulky. And if I'd had any sleep last night, I'd probably do a better job explaining it. But give me a shot at it. The knowledge, this is Jesus talking in Matthew. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, my apostles, but not to them, the people who were mocking and, and the, the Pharisaic Jews that didn't give a rip about what Jesus was doing unless it threatened them and then they wanted to bring him down. So the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to the apostles, the disciples, but not to the bad guys. This is why I speak to them in parables. And here's the quoting from Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Their eyes are working, but they don't see what I'm doing here. Though hearing, they don't hear or understand. Their ears are working, but they're not following what I'm talking about. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Your ears are going to work fine. You're just not going to hear what I'm really saying. Your eyes are going to work fine. You're just not going to see where I'm coming from. <clears throat> because this people's heart has become calloused. It's hardened. They hardly hear with their ears and they close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. But they don't. They won't. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to force it on them. I speak in these parables and those who have ears to hear will hear. But the rest whose hearts are callous and don't want the Lord won't. And Jesus gives this as an explanation. Now, let's look at the parables themselves. The first group of parables start in Matthew chapter 13. And these are parables that talk about the kingdom of heaven where Jesus is explaining some various characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. The first is the parable of the sower. Now, I've chosen to illustrate some of these with pictures. Um, the parable of the sower, I chose one of my favorite pictures. It's from Malay, who was a Barbizon painter uh, uh, over in France. They were the predecessors of the Impressionists. And uh, the Impressionists being the ones that most people are familiar with. Um, but uh, Malay was the greatest of the Barbizon painters, uh, uh, many think. And this is one of his most famous paintings. It's called The Sower. He actually wasn't doing squat about the Bible. It's just such a good painting. It illustrates our point. Because here's a guy who sows very much the same way they would in the time of Jesus with the seed sack around their neck and just flinging the seed out as they go along. And so Jesus tells a parable about a sower. And here's the story Jesus says. There once was a man who was sowing seed and he was strewing the seed out and throwing the seed out. And some of the seed fell on the, the path itself where the, the, the fellow was walking. Some of the seed fell in rocky soil where there really wasn't much soil of depth. It was more rock than it was soil. Some of it fell into an area that had thorns and thistles and weeds. And then some of the seed fell in good soil. <clears throat> Jesus says, the seed that fell in the path, birds came and ate it. Because it's on this hard path. It doesn't go down. It can't grow. And the birds fly down and eat that seed. 
Then there was seed that fell in the rocky soil. And it didn't have a whole lot of soil, so there wasn't a lot of depth for the seed. But because of that, the seed sprout up real quick. Because you, the seed wasn't down deep where it had to grow up much before it came up. So the seed sprouts real fast. But when the sun came out, the plants withered because the roots didn't go down deep enough to, to, to have moisture and staying power. Then there was the seed that fell in the thorns. And that seed started growing, but it never really bore a crop because there was so much other pollution around it, it got choked out. So many other plants and weeds that it choked the life out and, and those plants never produced a uh, crop. Now the plants, the seeds that fell into the good soil, Jesus said, they produced 30, 60, 100 times. You know, for every seed that went in, you were getting 100 coming out. And all the people listened to the story. They didn't have TV and stuff then. Okay, They were accustomed to sitting down and listening to stories. The people listen to the story. Jesus is sitting in a boat while he tells this story and the people are there on the shore. And the people are all kind of scratching their heads a little bit, including the disciples. And so the disciples come up to Jesus on the side and they say, <clears throat> um, the interesting thing, first they say, why do you speak in parables? And that's when Jesus gives them the explanation. Then they said, well, so what's that thing mean anyway? And what were you trying to say? And Jesus explains it. Jesus says that the, the seed is, the, the, in essence, the knowledge of God, the kingdom of heaven. And the seed that falls in the path where the birds eat the seed, that's people who hear about Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. People who hear, but they don't believe. Their heart is so hard, they have no belief, and the seed just bounces right off of them. And the birds come and the birds eat the seed. And there's no growth and there's no life. Nothing attaches to these people. Then the second group of people that there are, are the rocky soil people. And these people have a little bit of soil, but not much. There's not much depth to them. And when the word comes to them about Jesus and God, they receive it with joy. Like that little plant that just springs up real fast. But they quickly fall away when any kind of persecution comes because they don't have the depth to stay. I'll tell you, one of the reasons I'm so convicted about this class and teaching biblical literacy is from the Word of God we get the depth for our roots to spread out so that we've got staying power when persecution comes. We understand what it is. So Jesus says that's the rocky soil kind of people. The third kind of people are the thorns people. And this is interesting. He said these are people who receive the word but never bear fruit because they're too worried about what's going on in the world. They're too deceived by riches. That comes in a variety of forms. The deception that if you get them, you're going to be happy. Or the deception that if you have them, you need to hold on to them. Um, riches are very deceitful. Riches are not what they seem. You fight for them, you're not fighting for the right cause. You fight to keep them, you're not fighting for the right cause. And Jesus says, people who live, who are so caught up in the pursuit of the dollar, or the denarius, and people who are so worried about everything in life, they're missing out on what the word actually means. 
Jesus comes to us that we should have peace and joy and love and gentleness, but those peace and joy aren't found in people who are chasing things all the time that they've got to get. And then the good soil are people who hear the Word of God and accept it. They don't have to argue it and fuss it. They accept it and they grow in it and they thrive. So that's Jesus using an ordinary story to try and teach truth about what kind of people we need to be. And my prayer is that in my life I'll get rid of the places where my heart's a, a, a path, where my heart's rocky soil, where my heart is loaded down with the weeds and the thorns because I really want the Word of God to permeate in all areas of my life so that I can thrive and be fruitful to God. <clears throat> Jesus gives a second parable. And this is a parable of the weeds. Chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. And this is a parable where a man goes out and he sows really good seed. By good seed, we mean it was pure. It was the wheat it was supposed to be. And after the man sows his, his garden or his fields, the man goes back with his servants and they go to sleep. They're wiped out. They've been farming. And while they're asleep, an enemy comes. And an enemy takes fake wheat. The tares, the seeds of plants that look like wheat. This is called darnel is, is the actual crop. Looks like wheat until you find out at the very end it doesn't have any kernels of, of wheat. And so the enemy comes and he sprays this seed out everywhere while the man's sleeping. A few days later, servants are up and they see, oh my goodness, someone has intersped, there's weeds, the darnel is interspersed with the wheat and the servants go to the master and say, uh, we got a problem here. I thought you picked good seed out when, you, when we planted. And the farmer said, no, we had good seed. I know we had good seed. He said, well, look, it doesn't look good now because in the middle of all of the, the wheat, we've got the weeds growing. You want us to, to, to go out and, and pick the weeds? And the farmer says, no. Let me tell you what happened. While we were sleeping, an enemy came. And he's the one who polluted our field with the weeds. But don't pull it out now. If you pull it out now, you're going to be pulling out some wheat with it. And we'll lose the wheat before it, it, it bears its kernel. So just hang on and wait. And what we'll do is after the, the wheat's ready to harvest, that's when we'll go in and we'll pull the weeds. We'll burn the weeds and then we'll have the wheat at that time. And if we accidentally pull some of the wheat, at least we can go ahead and harvest it because it will have borne fruit. So we won't be pulling it early. Um, <clears throat> so wait to pull. The apostles come to Jesus and say, tell us about this one. We didn't quite, I mean, we, we followed the story, but we don't understand what it is. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you who the people are. The, the farmer that planted is the son of man, Jesus. The field where the seed was cast is the world. The enemy that comes in to try and pollute the work of Jesus is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age when the world is over and those going out there doing the harvesting are the angels. And Jesus says to him, he says, this is the way it's going to be. God's not coming right now and sending his angels right now to take away all of the pollution and all of the things that affect you and me. God's not ripping all the evil people out of the world right now. God's not ripping out all of the fake people. God's going to wait and give everybody their chance to grow. 
And at the end of the age, God will assemble those who are to be cast out and burned. And God will assemble those who are to be His treasure and His fruit. And that's the characteristic of the kingdom. A third parable of the kingdom is the parable of the mustard seed. Now, I like this one. It's very, very short. And I've picked this picture for it for a purpose. The parable of the mustard seed. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed. And the mustard seed's very, very, very small. It's like the smallest thing you guys are planting, Jesus says to the crowd. But after you plant it, it grows up into this huge plant. In fact, it's basically a tree it grows into. So the smallest seed you plant is going to become the largest tree you've got. And that's the way the kingdom of heaven is. Now think about it. 2,000 years ago almost, a 30-year-old man who was God in the flesh is standing in a little speck of earth in Palestine and is talking to a ragamuffin band of everyday people. <clears throat> and in 2,000 years, that little bitty mustard seed of just that small place on planet Earth and just that small group of insignificant people in the power structure of the day has grown into a tree so large that the First Presbyterian Church of Boise, Idaho has a stained glass window of this parable. It's, it's permeated the world. The stained glass window is beautiful. It says, it grew. And that's the mustard seed plant. And you've got the birds that nest in the branches as Jesus said that they would at the end of the parable. It's a short little uh, uh, couple verse parable. But uh, uh, it's, it's significant. Jesus is telling His apostles and it certainly became true that what's starting is just a small little thing right here is going to grow into this huge thing where all of the birds come nest in the branches. And that's why we're here today. This parable was very true. <clears throat> Jesus then gives a very similar parable of yeast. Basically, a little goes a long way. He says, think about the way you get a large hunk of dough, just a little bit of yeast, but you work it in and it affects everything. Now, if we are to take this, we're to understand it not only in the way that Jesus is saying that the kingdom would be this way from what happened with God and Jesus and the Palestinians and the apostles and the way it grew to monstrous worldwide proportions today. But the same thing is true on an individual basis with you and I. It's like macro and microeconomics. You can look at the big picture, you can look at a small picture. The same is true on an individual basis with you and I. You let God work in your heart and you do His kingdom's work in even the small things and the trees that will grow from what you do will be more than you could conceive. <clears throat> Next, Jesus told parables about hidden treasure, pearls, and a net. These are not a net as in Annette Funicello, uh, a net. Um, you all remember Annette Funicello? Wasn't she one of the original Mouseketeers? 
back when Bob had hair. Um, <clears throat> the hidden, these three parables all kind of go together in a way. Um, uh, Malay in 1864 published actually over a five-year stretch a number of significant pieces of art of the parables of Jesus. And uh, the parable of the hidden treasure, uh, we've pulled his picture here. A man's out working in a field and the man comes across a buried hidden treasure and it's wonderful. The man covers it back up and then goes and says to the guy who owns the field, how much you want for that field and everything in it? The guy names his price and the, 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 the fellow goes and, and says, uh, I'm selling everything I got. I'm buying that field. And the fellow sells everything he's got. You know, if, if, if I told you, <clears throat> let's put this in everyday language. I told Ray, I said, Ray, um, I got this piece of land over here. Y'all go look at it. <clears throat> Ray goes, look at it. Starts looking around and realizes, oh my goodness, here is like a million dollars worth of gold bullion buried on this land. Now he's my buddy, he'd probably tell me. <clears throat> but he might say, hey, is this land for sale? How much you want for the land and everything in it? Including the mineral rights. <laughs> and if I said, eh, I don't know. $10,000. Well, if you, could, if you could buy something for $10,000 that you could immediately cash in for a million, you know, that's what the economics call a no-brainer. Um, <clears throat> economists is word, sorry. Um, so, you know, you do it. And that's the story Jesus told. He said the kingdom of heaven's that way. It's so priceless. If you see what you've really got here, you'll sell everything you've got to get it. You see what Jesus really offers you. He doesn't offer you a raw deal. He offers you real life. Abundant. Really living. He can get rid of your worries. He can put joy in your heart. He can put you one-on-one -on -one with the Creator God. And if you really get a glimpse of that, you'll sell everything you've got to buy it and to be a part of it. The second one is a man who uh, uh, goes out and he finds this wonderful pearl. And this is a merchant who deals in pearls. And recognizing the value of that pearl and the need for it and the use of it, this man goes and sells everything he's got to get the pearl. Same concept. Jesus just changed from the, the farmers to the merchants to communicate to each. And the third, the net, is an interesting one. <clears throat> I took a contemporary painting. I don't do that much. Contemporary art to me is best appreciated at the hands of my daughters. Um, but this is a pretty good one because it illustrates the parable pretty well. Jesus says that there's a man who's out fishing and the way he was fishing was not with a rod and reel, but he had a big net and he threw the net out in the water and he pulled the net out and he got a ton of fish. And he sits there on the bank and he sorts out the keepers from the ones he's not keeping. The keepers go in the keep bucket. The ones he's not keeping, he throws back in or does something else with. Okay, good story. Everyday situation, everyday circumstance for those fishermen. Um, Jesus says this is the way the kingdom of heaven is though. Because what's going to happen at the end of the age is the angels are going to come and they're going to sort the people out. And the people that belong with God that are keepers are going to be given life. And the people that don't belong to God that aren't keepers are going to be thrown into the furnace. You may not be able to see it because of our ficus tree, our fake ficus tree. Um, 
But here is uh, the fire. And the angels are throwing the fish on the fire. And these fish are going to eternal life. And, it's, uh, and then there's the net. And I thought it was a pretty good picture, so we threw it up there. All right, next parable. Parable of the lost sheep. Now, this is an interesting parable. It's in Matthew 18. It's interesting because if you read Matthew, we're doing a disservice to the parables if you don't read the dialogue immediately before. Because Matthew's not randomly putting these parables in his book. The parables fit within a concept and a a flow of thought in the book itself. So, for example, the parable of the lost sheep starts out before it. Jesus is talking about how important it is to care for children. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All of his apostles are fighting for the right. Jesus says, time out. Look at these kids. They're going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, you need to become like a kid to get into the kingdom. And by the way, you need to take care of these children. Anyone who causes one of them to stumble is making a huge mistake. It'd be better if a big old rock was tied around your neck and you're thrown in the water. And then Jesus tells this parable. He says, think about it. If a man has a hundred sheep and 99 of the sheep are fine, but one of them strays and goes off, the man's going to go find that sheep. And when he finds the stray sheep, that man is happier See, he's smiling. That, that's the sheep over. It's not a, a stole. That's the sheep he's carrying over. His, okay? There's a chicken. There's a rooster. There's some more lambs. I watch TV till four in the morning. I'm easily distracted. Um, that man's coming back and he's smiling and laughing and everyone else is. And Jesus points out, you know how much joy. You got more joy over finding that one sheep then you're having joy over the 99 that didn't escape. When you come back after you found the missing one, you're ecstatic because of that one sheep and you found it. You don't come back high-fiving everybody, hey, 99 didn't run away. You know, you don't give a rip about the 99. They're fine. And Jesus is making a point. He's saying, you know, you've got to take care of the children because they're the next generation. They're the ones coming up. You need to take care of them. They can't take care of themselves. And you take joy in them. Jesus is not as concerned about the adults who are already tuned into His Word. Jesus is very concerned about the children who don't know better yet. And we need to take care of our children. Not just our own, but we need to take care of everybody's. The people who don't sit in Sunday school, who teach in the children's ministry, my hat is off to them. Because what they're doing affects my children. And that touches me deeply. And I'm very appreciative. Um, I've been asked to teach in like junior high. You know, Mike Cherry's sitting out there. Junior high and high school. I said, no way. I mean, give me a break. You think I'm an idiot? I'm going to go teach those kids? They're like terrors. <laughs> I know. I have some. No, mine, but mine are angels. <clears throat> They're always up in the air harping about something. Um, the, uh, um, that's pretty good. They're angels. <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, 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 so so Jesus is you know people who tune in and who do that. Mike, my hat's off to you and Marty. You know, my hat is off to anybody who's doing that. That's the Lord's work. Evangelism truly does start at home. 
Next, parable of the unmerciful servant. Um, this is an incredible little story. Have you, who's ever been wronged? Anybody ever done anything wrong to you? Oh, come on. Who has ever... Tell the truth. Okay. I mean... Okay. Um, <clears throat> it happens on a regular basis. And Demond last week preached on baggage. For some people, their greatest baggage are where they've been wronged and they don't let go of it. Okay. You ever been wronged? Well, Jesus tells a story. There's a king who wants to collect... I'm going to tell the story. We'll get back to this. king wants to collect his debts. It's payday. And he's ready to collect. So he goes to everybody that owes him money and he calls them in. And this one guy comes in and he owes the king thousands of talents. Okay. Let's don't use biblical money. Let's use ours. Think millions of dollars. King says, where's the millions of bucks? It's a balloon payment. I'm ready. And the man falls down on his knees and says, King, I don't have it. I'm not even close. You know, King says, okay, well, let's start selling your wife and your kids. We'll throw you in prison and make you work till you get enough money to pay me. Man says, oh, please, 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 please. And he starts begging for mercy. And the king's moved. He has pity in his heart as the guy's begging for his wife and begging for his kids and begging for his life. And the king says, okay. And the king does not say, I'm going to give you 30 days to find the money. The king says, I'm going to wash the debt. The millions you owe me, you're even with me. It's washed. That servant had to be feeling like the weight of the world was lifted off his shoulders. Jesus says, but you know what the servant did? The servant decided he needed to go collect his debts from the people who owed him. And he called in a fella, said, you owe me a few hundred bucks. I want it and I want it now. And the fella said, falls on his knees and says, I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm sorry. I don't have it. Give me more time. Give me a chance. Man says, no way. No way. I'm putting you in prison. I'm taking out your wife. I'm taking out your kids. Everybody. You're going to jail. You're going to be tortured over this. You ought, to, you ought to pay your debts. The word comes to the king. King says, I want to see that guy. And the fellow comes into the king, and here Rembrandt, or Dross starts painting. Dross was another painter after the school of Rembrandt. And Dross uh, uh, paints, and the fellow's brought in there in between two guys who brought him, and the king's there and he points at him. And the king says, I just forgave you millions of dollars. And you've turned around and you're going to torture and destroy a man and his family for a few hundred bucks. Uh-uh. To jail with him. It's a compelling story. And Jesus says, <clears throat> forgiveness flows both ways. Don't you come to God asking for forgiveness when you're not willing to forgive the people who've wronged you. Uh, Damon and I had a chance to visit some on Friday. And we were talking about something. And, and uh, uh, I told Damon about a, a fellow that worked for me 
that I had some trouble with on, on an issue. And basically the fella, I think, stole from me. Um, and I said, you know, I just felt like I was kicked in the gut because this is a guy I trusted. This is a guy I had opened up my family to, my life to, my home to. Now, he had keys to my house. He had keys to my cars. He had, I, I'd let him come and go. I'd trust him with my money. I, I, I mean, uh, and I just felt like this guy kicked me in the gut. And DeMond said something very interesting that's just even stayed through 24 episodes of 24. <laughs> DeMond says, you know, I think that's probably the way God feels just about every day. Because I think I probably betray God just as much every day. I said, all right, well, let's talk about something else. So, <laughs> in chapter 20 of Matthew, um, uh, uh, Matthew tells the parable of the vineyard workers. And this is an interesting parallel that I like. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever... Uh, gone. There are certain places where you can go like on a Saturday morning if you need to hire some people to do some labor. Typically they're from the Mexican-American community or, or even just the Mexican community, but they hang out in places and if you go there early in the morning, they'll come to your car or truck and negotiate with you on what kind of work you want done and what you're willing to pay them. And this is a standard way from people of certain cultures to, to get jobs where they don't have permanent employment. They just work that way. That's one of the things that this reminds me of this story because uh, the marketplace was not that dissimilar back uh, at the time of Christ. So Jesus tells a story about a man who needs some work done in his vineyard. So he goes into the market square to find the people who are gathered together for work. And he says, hey, I need six of you guys. Or doesn't tell us how many. I'm making up that number. But I need six of you guys to come out and work in my vineyard today. I'll pay you your day's wage, your denarius. That meant a day's wage. Pay you your day's wage if you come out and work in my vineyard. And they say, okay, now it's a 12-hour work day back then. So they go out and start to work for 12 hours. Well, it's three hours into the work day, and the fellow's seeing that the work's not getting done. He's going to need more help. So he goes back, and he tries to find a few more guys and says, hey, would you all come on out and finish out the day, and I'll pay you at the end of the day, and I'll be fair with you. Guys say, okay. So they go out and start working. Well, you roll through. They only have nine hours to work, right? Because it's already three hours into the day. Six hours into the day. You got six hours left. Fellow says, work's still not getting done. I better get some more help. Goes and finds some more guys. Hey, y'all want to come? Just finish out the next six hours. Finish out the day out in my vineyard. And I'll be fair with you when I pay you at the end of the day. They say, okay. And that day, the sun's starting to go down. The fellow's saying, it's just not quite getting there. So with three hours left, he goes and hires some more guys. So all you got to do is work this last three hours. We got to get this done before the sun goes down. I'll be fair with you at the end of the day. I said, okay. End of the day comes. Everybody lines up to get their pay. And in the line, the guys who work there just three hours are first in line. And they come up and the man says, here is your denarius, your whole day's wage. And the guys that worked three hours got paid as if they'd worked 12. Well, if I'm sitting in the back of that line, I'm thinking, hey, hey, hey I can do this math. We just got, instead of, you know, if it was $100 a day... They worked one-fourth of the day, and they got a hundred bucks. So I'll bet you he's, like, giving us a bonus of one, two, three, four. I ought to get four hundred bucks, because I worked four times what those guys did. I mean, that's the way my... Y'all may not think that way, but that's the way my brain's thinking. 
Because I'm watching. Okay? Then the next guys go up there, and the next guys had worked twice as much as the guys that just made a hundred bucks. They'd been there working six hours. But hey, uh, <clears throat> we were the ones that were here twice as long as those guys that just got paid a hundred dollars. We're ready. And the owner says, "Well, all right. Here's your day's wage." They got the same hundred bucks. You know, they're kind of scratching their head when the next guys get up and say, "Excuse us, we worked." three times as long as those three-hour guys. We've been here nine hours now. They got their day's wage, 100 bucks. Then the guys that busted their chops for 12 hours out there, that had been out there since the early morning, come and they got in line, and they get their pay, and they got their day's wage, 100 bucks. And they're furious. They're absolutely furious. And this is, in the words of my five- and six-year-old, this is not fair. They don't even know what that word means. Who taught our kids that word? You know, what, what is fair? Um, I, I've, I'm cultivating these answers that will cause emotional scarring, that, that will require counseling later in life. But when I'm dead, they'll say, remember how dad always used to say? Uh, um, so this is, uh, children, it's spelled L-I-F-E, life, not F. A-I-R. Fair. Life ain't fair. This is life. This ain't fair. <laughs> anyway, so the, the guys, the guys, uh, the guys up there and they say, this is not fair. We worked four times and the man says, time out, time out, time out, time out. And look, I made the deal with you to work for a day and I'd pay you for a day. I did what I said. You got a fair wage. If I want to be overly generous with some of these other guys, you can't get mad at me for that. That's my right. And Jesus uses this to point out something about the kingdom. No, we have no right to get upset when God lets the ex-convict into the kingdom. When we've been living pretty righteous our whole lives. How come my neighbor gets blessed by God in some significant way when I'm not getting that blessing and I'm actually much better about holiness than my neighbor is. <clears throat> Next, there are three parables where Jesus talks about His authority and we're winding this down here, but I couldn't pass this up. Ian Pollock is a, a, a contemporary artist of some renown and he painted this. And this is a wonderful illustration of the parable of the two sons. Those are the two sons. The fat-cheeked, uh, big-nosed, goofy-head guys who are sort of sitting up on the wall enjoying life. This, for those of us who've been parents, understand, is the father. <laughs> Down here below the wall on about foot level with those guys with a plant for a hat. Now the father has his finger in the air because as Jesus tells the story, there's a father who has two sons and the father says to the sons, go to work. Okay. That was not in the original painting. I've added the language. <laughs> this was not a bubble cartoon as originally drawn and hanging in the museum. The dad says, go to work. Boy number one says, 
No! But then changes his mind, decides, yeah, I should do what dad says, and he goes to work. Boy number two says, okay, dad, I'll go. But never goes. Jesus says, who do you think the father's going to be more pleased with? The one that said no, but did it? Or the one that said, oh, you bet, dad, I'm there, and never did it? A or B? Hey, yeah, y'all got it right. Um, <clears throat> y'all are either biblical scholars or parents. Um, Jesus says this is the way it is with the, uh, uh, the kingdom and the authority. God's more concerned not about the people who, who uh, give the lip service. He's concerned about the people who do it. Okay. Next, he gives an authority parable of the tenants. Um, this guy's got this great vineyard. He's got it all decked out and he leaves and lets all these people farm. And then at the end of the farming, the fellow's entitled to his payment, to his fair share. He sends some servants, says, go collect my fair share. The servants go to collect and they get killed. They ain't going to pay. Kaboom. Dead. Actually, one of them was stoned. Huh, huh, dead. So the guy says, well, I better send some more servants. So he sends more this time. Again, killed. Dead. Guy says, okay, I'm not getting through these people. Um, they're not respecting my servants. They must not think they're legitimate and legitimately mine. They must think they're there to steal. So I'll send them someone where they know the authority and they know it's legitimate. I'll send my son. No question. He's not there to steal. He's there to collect for me. Son goes and the guy says, hey, this is his son. We kill him. We'll inherit this whole place. He won't have anybody to leave it to. So they kill the boy. Jesus says, what do you think is going to happen when the owner decides to take his paramilitary group down there and deal with this? Well, you know the answer. Um, the owner will get retribution. And Jesus says, this is the way the kingdom is because, and he quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. We'll get into that a lot more later in Scripture because Paul really goes a long way with this example. But what Jesus is saying is, is God has sent me down here to save you. And the thieves who are trying to steal from God will kill me over it. But God will get you and He will get His money. He will come and He will take what is His and those who did it will be destroyed. Last, wedding banquet. Um, guy prepares a great wedding. All the guests are invited and nobody shows up. It's a big no-show. He's got all the food. He's got everything ready to go. Nobody's there. So the guy says, uh, go ask, go invite some more people. So he sends out servants, say, invite more people. Those people say, man, we, we don't want to go. And so the man says, well, just open it wide up. Go find some people on the streets. This food's going to go to waste. We got a big banquet here. Let someone enjoy it. It's a buffet. It's all you can eat. So a bunch of people say, oh, it's a wedding buffet. Okay, okay, okay. And they put on their clothes and they come in for it. Except one guy who just decides he can go however he pleases and stumbles in in his non-wedding attire. And the man comes out and says, okay, now I invited all these people to the wedding or offered them to come in, but you've got to come in right and you've got to show respect for what you're doing. So take that guy that didn't wear the clothes that just came in to take advantage of things instead of to properly be a part of things and get rid of it. Cast him out. And that's the way it is. Parable of the ten virgins. This is Jesus saying, get ready. You don't know when the kingdom is coming. And there's a man who's getting married. 
and he's got ten virgins who are going to carry in the processional for the wedding, the Jewish wedding, the lamps. And uh, so they come, and five of them are smart enough to bring extra oil. The other five don't. They're just dumb or lazy. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. It gets to midnight when it's time to start doing the processional, and the oil's just about gone for the five goofy girls and the five smart girls have their extra oil. The goofy girls say to the smart girls, hey, can we borrow some oil, man? We're about out. The smart girls say, no, well, then we won't have enough. And so the goofy girls say, okay, well, we're going to go find some. So they wander off, and at that moment while they're gone is when the wedding procession starts, and they're not there to enjoy it. So Jesus says, get ready. This is the way the kingdom of heaven is. You don't know when I'll come back. So you need to be ready all the time. Don't be a goofy girl. Be a smart one. Take your extra oil. Be ready. Um, then we end with another Ian Pollock, the parable of the talents. I love this parable. This is the same guy who did the one with the... the uh, Jesus says there is a, a fella who's the center of attention in this painting, and he's got all the money in the world. And they call, some of the money was called talents. When we read the parable of the talents, it's not talking about abilities. It's talking about money. Okay? We can understand it as abilities because God doesn't give us all just money. He gives us abilities. It applies to our abilities. But don't misunderstand the Greek word. First understand he's talking about money when he talks about talents. One guy gets five of them. One, two, three, four, five. Another fellow gets two. One, two. Another fellow gets one. The man goes away. He comes back later. Says, okay, I entrusted you with the money. Come bring it back and show me what you did with it. The fellow who had the five with a smile on his face and a jump up, hooray, says, I made you five more. I invested it. Look how good I did. Guy says, good job. Then the guy with two, he's jumping up in the air. Hooray, look, I made two more. I invested it. Yeah, very good. Good job. And the fellow who's down on the ground with the little shovel in his hand and the hole in the ground holding up one says, well, I didn't do anything with mine except dig a hole and bury it in the backyard. Because I knew you were a tough guy and I didn't want to risk losing it. And the man says, you know, you could have at least gone to the bank and put it in the bank and earned some interest. And he, the man took the coin, the, the talent from that fella, and he gave it to the guy who already had five and said, look, to whom much is, you know, if you've got lots and you're using it right, you're going to get more. If you're not using what you got, you're not even going to keep it. And that, my friends, is a lesson to all of us, not only with our money, but it's a lesson to us with our time, our abilities, and everything we've got. If you use it right to the Lord, He's going to be able to trust you with more and more and more and use you for more and more and more. If you don't use right the little bit, don't think you're going to get a lot one day and get to use it right. Okay? That's the lesson. So, points for home. Be good soil. Let God's Word permeate who you are. Don't be deceived by riches and worries. Put your faith in God and let that take care of things. Look out for children, whether they're yours or not. Love them. Give them a smile. Give them encouragement. Teach them about Jesus. Forgive other people. If you don't, it makes your life a wreck. You don't forgive them because they deserve it. You forgive them because you need to. Jesus has authority over everything and be ready. He will return. Finally, use your gifts. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've covered a lot of material this morning. It is my prayer that some of it somewhere has touched everybody in here through your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for the honor of teaching. I pray your blessings on us. I pray your blessings on our visitors. I pray your blessings on our members. 
In Jesus, amen.